Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, we started a series in this uh, great book. Um, quick intro is it's uh, about, uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Um, oh, one other thing too I was going to say is uh, one other element, especially while we are still outdoors, that we are still working on is the proper balance between getting sound out to you guys versus the ambient sounds that are so beautifully just like of nature pouring in here from the birds to the rustling of the trees to the sound of vehicles or people honking their horns or the occasional Harley-Davidson. We're constantly working on the balance between being able to project sound for you guys to be able to hear. Um, From what I'm told is that there are certain limits that if you are like, Ben, raise your hand. There's Ben. Look at Ben. If you are like where Ben's at or even beyond Ben, it's a little bit difficult to hear. So what we're inviting you to see is if you look around, we are trying to, again, pay attention to being socially distanced. But there's all sorts of different spaces. And if you find yourself in a spot where it's hard for you to hear, whether it be during the music or whether it be during the teaching, and you're sitting way back there and you're having a hard time uh, paying attention just because of the balance between uh, the sound that we're able to project versus the sound on the street versus not wanting to offend this line of houses that are right here uh, consistently or be an annoyance to them. My encouragement to you would be to just come sit up as close to the front as you can. There's spots up here. If you need a chair, we're happy to help provide that for you. But just um, something for you to consider um, maybe even next week as well. So the book of First Peter is basically a letter that was written by Peter himself. He was one of Jesus' inner circle of followers or disciples. And uh, he was writing this letter to a community of Christians, people that were devoted or loyal to Jesus, scattered across uh, the region of, of Asia Minor, otherwise known as modern-day Turkey. And the list of names of those places are kind of there in verse 1 and 2. But that being said, what we know about these people is that these people are living in the Roman Empire, which is you know the world militaristic superpower of the day, and there is always a temptation for them to just try to fit in, and in doing so, fitting in um, would ultimately cause them to shed their Christian identity. So there's this like balance between fitting in, being accepted by the broader culture, losing your identity as a follower of Jesus, or maintaining your identity as a follower of Jesus and running the possibility of being cast out or being rejected or being hated or in some cases even being killed, which is what was beginning to take shape in the Roman Empire at this particular time. In fact, uh, many scholars believe that the time that this was actually written, it was during the reign of a guy by the name of uh, uh, Caesar Nero. If you're familiar at all with Roman history, you know that Nero was not a good guy. Uh, He actually was kind of crazy and the way he treated the people uh there in rome he created fires and blamed them on other people people groups minority people groups one of those minority people groups were both jews as well as christians and ultimately led to a massive slaughter in fact most scholars believe that when peter wrote this he was probably about five years off from himself being crucified upside down there in rome by caesar nero so peter's writing to this community of Christians that are scattered across this Roman Empire, and he's trying to urge them, as followers of Jesus, maintain, hold on to, don't walk away from, don't try to be tempted into being accepted by the culture. 
hold on to the identity that God's given you, and God will pull through for you. God will take care of you. That does not necessarily mean that God's going to provide you with a nice big house and a you know, a, a nice marriage and beautiful kids and a white picket fence around, you know, your stucco house. But the point of the matter is, is that what Peter's trying to communicate is that you may suffer incredible oppression and hardship, but God is nonetheless with you. Um, in short, this is a letter where he's trying to encourage people to maintain their fidelity to God. I can't think of a more significant letter for us as a community living in 2021 for us to think about and to really prayerfully consider. So what I want to do right now is we jump in. I'm going to uh, read the little section. Um, in fact, how about we all stand one more time. We'll read the passage together and then I'll pray and then we'll get to work. If anything, it's good to get the blood flowing through our bodies because it's freezing today. As you can tell, I got my, my gloves on. Okay, here we go. First Peter uh, chapter 1, I'm going to pick it up at verse 3 and 4. Peter starts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for your love that's been put on display for us. Thank you for the inheritance that we have been given. So right now, Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts to be filled with hope, especially if we were in a state of despair, to be filled with a sense of gratitude, especially if we find ourselves very discontent in life and with what we've been given. So God, meet us in this place, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Uh, what I want to do right now is I want to just basically take apart those little sections that we read. It's so filled with so much. I told you last week we're going to begin to pick up pace, and uh, we got maybe like five words into one verse. So I lied to you. It wasn't intentional. Uh, it ends up happening once in a while. But my hope is today to continue to keep that pace going. Um, again, there's going to be moments in this great book when we will slow down for a number of reasons, one of which is because the content's so thick and rich and good that we want to not rush through it and take some time to really consider it and think about it. And uh, what we're going to do right now is I want to begin to take a look at some of what we started last week, um, but then we will hopefully finish the train of thought here today. One thing that's kind of fascinating that scholars have pointed out is in the first few verses, like from verse 3 on, to, on down to about verse 14, I believe it is, or 12 or 14, something like that, um, it is one big ongoing run-on sentence. In the original Greek, there's no uh, you know, periods. It's just this ongoing train of thought. Um, it's as if Peter kind of gets on this roll, and he's talking about God's greatness, God's goodness, and he's just he can't stop, can't hold himself back and he just lets loose on God's goodness. Um, in our English Bibles, for most part, we have, you know, the proper punctuation and whatnot because the sentence has been broken down so that we can think about them in trains of thoughts. But the big idea is that this is just one big ongoing um, theme of praise that Peter's just unpacking. So with that, I want to start by looking at this section where he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to focus on this little phrase, according to his great mercy, his great mercy. And just think about that because from 
God's great mercy is going to flow three really important aspects that Peter's just going to want to bring to the forefront for us to consider. And what I want to do is we'll look at those three things and I'll just finish with some practical thoughts as to why these are so significant, why they matter to our lives and to our development as followers of Jesus. So the first phrase is the word uh, or many mercies or great mercies. Again, depending upon what translation that you have, my ESV just simply says according to the great mercy or his great mercy. Other translations might say uh, the many mercies of God. In the actual Greek, it's the, the word for many is this word that maybe a couple of you might be familiar with. It's the word poly, P-O-L-Y, right? Just like Cal Poly, right? The idea is many, manifold. There's many aspects to it. It's multifaceted. And that's what he's describing is that God's mercy um, is many multifaceted. In other words, it's a gift that keeps on giving. And he's going to begin to describe what are some of those gifts, one of those elements that flow from God's mercy. Um, God's mercy is an important part of his character. And uh, I think when Peter's writing this, no doubt because Peter's Jewish, which means that Peter would have been very familiar with the ancient Hebrew scripture, uh, which means that Peter is approaching this whole letter from a storyline, a narrative that he was a part of, that Peter knew, he's familiar with. Um, and I think as I read this, and as I had read this uh, many times, I think one of the things that kept coming back to my mind is that this seems to echo an Old Testament passage, a very famous Old Testament passage that actually gets repeated almost 20 to 25 different times throughout the New Testament as well. And it's this little passage, if, you want, if you're taking notes, you can write down Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. You can turn if you want, it's the second book in the Bible. I'm just going to read a little segment of it because it's this little portion where this guy by the name of Moses, he's beginning to form, formulate this relationship with God where he's going to be a leader over God's people. And the big idea behind this was that God was going to redeem and restore a community of a minority group who's been oppressed. He's going to rescue them from Egypt, and it's what he actually just did. But then 40 days later, he brings them to this big mountain called Mount Sinai. And it's there on Mount Sinai. God's going to then give to them basically his code of ethics. God's going to share with them what we would commonly describe as the Ten Commandments. And in this exchange, God gives the Ten Commandments. God speaks to Moses. Moses has discourse with God. And one of the elements that God then says to Moses, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And here's the way that God actually reveals himself to Moses. Listen to the words that God says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 6 or 7. Just listen to what it says. Then the Lord passed before Moses, and then he proclaimed. This is what God says of himself. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh. A God who is merciful, there's our, our phrase, merciful, uh, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, he's faithful, verse 7, says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And the big idea that's basically being conveyed here is that God's revealing himself to Moses, who's then going to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And one of the very first things that God reveals about his ways is he says, I'm merciful. I'm merciful. This is who I am. So anytime you as a follower of Jesus, think about why be merciful. The, the big idea behind that is because mercy is who God is. 
It's, a, it's part of his character. It's part of who he is and how he acts and how he functions and how he treats you and how he treats the other and how he even treats the enemy. Um, at the very time that God was giving this revelation of himself to Moses, literally at the same time, at the bottom of the mountain, uh, there was a big massive party that was going on. And it was the children of Israel were actually already forming a false god to worship this false god simultaneously as Moses is getting this. Now, again, God knew very well exactly what was going on. In the same moment as the people of Israel being unfaithful to God, God's doing what? He's proclaiming his faithfulness. God's saying, look, even the people of Israel, even though right now what they're doing is horrifically wicked and evil and unbecoming of anything that would be any form representative of who I am, God's saying, I'm announcing my faithfulness to them. And I just want you to pause and think about that. Again, on Valentine's Day. Where else will you find a quality of love that says, I will be there for you always, even in your unfaithfulness, even in your failure, even when you are unbecoming or even when you are defiled, God says, I will be there for you. And this is the idea of mercy, that God initiates, God moves towards us. It's one of the reasons why in the New Testament book called First John, he says, we love him because he first loved us. The big idea behind that is that God is the initiator of love. God is the one that initiates this. He starts this. He moves in your direction. The only reason why we move in that direction is because God has initiated the movement towards us first and foremost. And that action, that movement is what the New Testament writers would describe or the old writers of the whole Bible is the mercy of God. God stepping in our direction to bring transformation, change, love, kindness into our world. So this is what we see is that God's great mercy is revealed. Peter tells us, again, that according to his great mercy, then he begins to point out how these mercies begin to, and what they begin to bring forth. So listen to them again, and I'll just read them to you, and I'll kind of break them down one by one, and then we will f finish with some final thoughts, and then also no great, or no sermon is uh, complete without a great quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'll give that to you. Happy Valentine's Day. So the thing is, is that he points out four or three different things that are really essential that God's mercies are the initiating factor to bring forth. Number one, he says, we are born again to a living hope. We are born again. The big idea behind this, again, plays into this larger picture of life. Uh, it'd be probably good and worthwhile for us to just pause and think about the anthropology of humanity according to the Bible. In other words, how does the Bible think about human beings? Uh, to think about this in contrast, how does our culture at large think about human beings? How does Oprah Winfrey think about human beings? Again, not picking on her, but someone like, I think she's a great representative of broader culture at large. Uh, again, I think she's probably a great woman. So, um, but the point of them, a nice person, but human being trying to do good for other people. But I think the big general idea is that all human beings are just simply good people who've been given bad choices and they just kind of at some point steer out of control. In other words, the basis of human beings are good people. But the anthropology of the Bible is actually a little bit different. 
It actually says that human beings, from the very core, we make decisions that are bent away from God. So one big notion that oftentimes gets brought up in conversations about God and human beings is, aren't human beings given free choice? And here's just my simple introduction to this, is that, yes, but the choices we make are choices that are oftentimes lead to our destruction and the destruction of other people, or at least chaos, or the hurt, or the harm. Uh, another way to think about it is we, as human beings, at the very core of our existence, we're selfish. We're self-centered. In other words, just take a look at a child, two-year-old child, right? 18-month-old child. You don't have to train them to be selfish. I don't even think you have to teach them the word mine. It's just like naturally, at some point, it's like the first word. Like you have to like, uh, like purposefully try to train your kid not to say. Don't say mine. Why does a kid do that? Because at the very core of our wiring hardwiring is we want to put ourselves central. You, you have to train a child to think differently, to not be center of their own universe. That's just how we are wired. And what the Bible describes is that because of that wiring towards eliminating God out of our lives or pushing him off to the periphery or pushing him to the margins, we have this tendency to, to, to be the very center of our lives ourselves. We make our own decisions based upon what we think are most important. So one of the reasons why it's so important for you to make sure that what you are feeding your mind, because it will either help you become someone that is putting God central or just the narrative at large. That kind of plays into the, the inner narrative inside of ourselves, which is self-centeredness. And what the Bible describes to us is that at the very beginning, God created human beings to share in his world. To make choices that would be in alignment with God. In other words, if you want to put it in the most simplistic terms, God created human beings so that we would be in alignment by saying, yes, Lord. Yes, God. But what we end up doing is saying, no. We push God off to the side. Another way to think of it is we try to emancipate ourselves from the family of God. And in doing so, what scripture teaches over and over and over again is that to be in right relationship with God... We are then in right relationship with light, life, and love. Light meaning wisdom, life meaning being alive, and of course, love. And that's what God says from the very beginning. But to emancipate ourselves from God, to push God off to the margins, we're not delving deeper into light, life, and love. We're actually moving more into darkness, death, and alienation. And this is what's happening in our world today. So it's always been happening in our world up into this day. And what God says is that human beings, because of the choices of turning away from God, saying no to God, saying yes to ourselves, yes to our desires that are oftentimes in conflict with God, what we have opened is this Pandora's box of death. So if you want to try to understand the news, what's happening in our world, the simple word that can be used is death. And all of its friends are in this moment ruling the day. Would you agree with that? That's what's happening in our world. Death and all of its friends is the agent that's in charge. And so because God loves this world, his aim is not to let death have the final say. God's aim from the very beginning was to step in to do something about death, to suspend its impact, its effect and its destruction and its chaos to undo that 
And so that becomes basically the main plotline of the entire Bible. From Genesis chapter 3, God says, I'm going to do something about the death that's infected this world like a bad virus. And I'm going to undo that. I'm going to unplug death and all of its friends and replace life in its place. Now, that raises the big question. How is that going to happen? How will human beings go from a state of rebellion against God to becoming people that are now in alignment with God? That becomes the big question. And this is where the prophets actually begin to play a really significant role. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, I'll read it to you. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. God says to the people, or God says to the prophets about the people, he says, I will give them one heart, a new spirit. He says, I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone and their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey me, and, I, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And this is just one of many such prophecies that the prophets envision. I, I like to think of the prophets as being like poets. They're the poets of the day. They're the rock stars, though they might not have had a, you know, a guitar or a band, but they were the prophets. They were the poets, the rock stars of the day that were prophetically putting together poems or ideas and then speaking forth. Here's what they envision. One day God will have a new form of people that rather than living in rebellion against him, fabricating their own little cows at the bottom of the mountains and worshiping their own desires, their own selves and creating and unleashing more chaos in this world. God says, I'm going to create a whole new Family of people who have a brand new heart. And this probably is exactly what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3, verse 3. I'm sure all of you are familiar with this because at some point in your life, I'm certain you've heard of the phrase born again Christian, which, by the way, is kind of a, you know, it's just using the same language to describe the same thing. Uh, if you are a Christian, you are born again. If you are born again, you are a Christian. They're the same thing. In other words, I would even go so far as to say is that you are not a Christian if you are not born again. So here's what Jesus would say to this religious leader who's having this theological dialogue with Jesus. He says in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the reign of God, the kingdom of God. What Jesus is suggesting to this religious leader, he says, look, you can go about all these religious duties and activities, but unless your heart is new, then you will continue to just go down this path of chaos and death. That's the big idea. In order for our lives to have true meaning, something has to happen inside of us that God makes us alive. God speaks to us. God wakens the death the darkness and the sleep and the slumber of our soul, and we come to life. There's, I, I can't even honestly, like, on a personal level, describe what happened to me when I was around almost 16 years old. That took place, I think it was actually probably in a 1984 Volkswagen Vanagon in a Catholic parking lot, talking to my stepmom. That in that moment, something happened where my heart went from darkness and death to coming alive. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what took place. There wasn't anything. I wasn't saying a prayer. I was literally talking about my life and how messed up and broken I was. And then in that instant, something just overwhelmed me with this reality that I can be forgiven and washed and cleansed and be made new. It's what we would describe as being made alive again or born 
Again, something passes from death to life. And so what Peter is saying is that God's mercies is what has brought this in your life. If you are a follower of Jesus today, if you are and have been born again, experience this, please understand that this was something you did not do to yourself. God did this to you. And if you're here this morning and all this stuff just sounds nonsensical or crazy or ridiculous or maybe even just foreign and you're just like, I don't really quite get it. It may be that something, this new life has not been taking place in your heart yet. And the beauty of this is, is that God is seeking after you. He loves you. How God does this in cooperation in terms of like us saying yes, Lord, or us giving our hearts to Jesus or whatever. I, I, I'm not even going to try to begin to act as if I understand all that. But the point of the matter is, is that God initiates this step and makes us alive in Jesus. And this is exactly what Peter is describing. By his many mercies, his multifaceted mercies, God has made us alive through Jesus. Listen to the second thing that he describes. Number two, we are filled with a living hope through or by the resurrection. Filled with a living hope. Listen to again, First Peter chapter one, uh, the little section in verse, or First Peter chapter one, verse three. It says this: "To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." What I want to make really clear here is what what Peter is describing is that because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which seems to be a New Testament way of identifying not just his after death experience. But his life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Meaning all three of these or all four of these elements wrapped in one. The big idea is this, is that through what Jesus has done, by rising again from the dead, this becomes the anchor for our hope. Uh, If you were to pause right now and just look past, look back over 2020 and over the past, you know, several months of your life even, and just ask, have you found yourself more in a state of despair or more in a state of hope? Um, What I think what Peter's describing, as he had described to these early first century Christians, that even though they may have been in a state of despair, there was a possibility for them to merge into a state of hope. Not because... They're trying to be optimistic, or not just because they're trying to like turn that frown upside down, but the big idea was that they were anchoring themselves into an event, a historical event, and that being Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The New Testament pictures this idea of resurrection as being the most central, most important event in all history. It wasn't just a fanciful story. It's important for us to understand that Christianity is not just first and foremost the adherence to the teachings of a dead guy, whether it be Muhammad or Buddha, Confucius or philosophy or Stoicism or some other form of really interesting teaching. That's not what Christianity is first and foremost. It might involve studying the scriptures, but it's not that first and foremost, nor is it an institution. Though well-meaning people, I think throughout times, they have definitely been guilty as charged to institutionalize the Christian church. At its core, Christianity is about these claims of a historical event that happened, that Jesus, though he died, and though he was a victim of the state and injustice, he conquered that, and he rose again. And the early followers of Jesus, they had to, they had to reckon with that. They had to take a look at the fact, wait, he was once dead, 
Now he's alive. What does this mean for us? And it was that action that literally changed the entirety of their lives. So as you think about it, these claims of this God who conquered death through the resurrection of Jesus, that death could not hold Jesus down. Which means if he rose again from the dead, he's actually bigger than our greatest enemy. So if you pause real quick and just think about this, how big, how vast, how broad, how massive is death? Well, death affects all of us. All of us. You may be at a place in your life right now where you're just like, ah, death has not affected me that much. I don't really know many people that have died, especially my own family. At some point, given enough time, you will begin to encounter death in all of its friends, in all of its forms, in all of its facets. Death of a relationship, death of a boyfriend or a girlfriend, death of memories that were once awesome and now they've just kind of been tainted. Death of a job, death of hopes, death of dreams. You can fill in the blanks. But the point of the matter is, is that if Jesus rose again from the dead, this is God's big, massive stamp of approval of his life over death. And what Peter's suggesting is that because of this new life, through the resurrection, this actually gives us hope. Notice the adjective that he uses. It's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a hope that's based upon what you do. It's not a hope that's anchored in how well you know the teachings of Scripture, though that does help. But it's a hope that's rooted in something far more firm and unmovable, which is what God did, his resurrection through Jesus. So this hope, one other final thing, is not kept by you, so notice that, but kept for you. It's kept for you. You don't keep this thing. It's not, it's not, and I just, again, think about this. This is so life-giving because if it was anchored upon what you did, then think about those moments where you're having a bad day or a bad week or just a bad life, right? Bad 2020, bad year, 2021, you were hoping we're going to get any, get better, but it has not gotten any better. The point of the matter is, is that this hope is situated firm in what God has done. And then lastly, and I'll wrap it up with this thought. He says that these mercies of God also not only make us born again to a new life, fill us with this living hope through his resurrection, but has given us an inheritance. And I'll listen to the adjectives that he used to describe this. He says it's imperishable. It's an undefiled inheritance. It's unfading. Now, if you just pause and think about the word inheritance, it's this, this you know, thing that you get. At some point in the future, it might not come right now, but the big idea is, is what does God have that he will then give away? Well, what does God, God not have? God has everything. That's, I think, part of the whole profile of being God. You have everything. It all belongs to you. Well, who will God give it to you? God says to those who belong to me, who are my heirs, who I have brought to life and I have swept up into this new hope. That they have. And then he goes on to say that this hope or this inheritance is imperishable, which means it cannot decay. It's undefiled, meaning it won't spoil. Unfading, meaning obviously it won't fade away. Um, it won't erode, whatever type of word you like to use to think about. And if you were, again, were to pause and think about what are those things right now in your life that you would look at and say, this isn't going anywhere. 
Maybe it's your stock profile. Like, it, ain't, it ain't going anywhere. That's a joke. Uh, maybe it's property value. It ain't going anywhere. Uh, that's another joke. Uh, maybe it's peace in our nation. Uh, another joke. The point of the matter is, is that anything and everything that we oftentimes anchor ourselves into, it's fading. It's temporary at best. And what Peter's suggesting is that this inheritance that God has given to us doesn't fade. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. So I want to finish with some final closing thoughts. Um, what does this mean for us in the long run? Like, what, what, why the big deal about having been born again, being brought into a new humanity, uh, having this hope that comes through the resurrection, and then being given this inheritance? How does that impact us? I think at least three specific ways in which this transforms us. Number one, I think to the degree that the above that we just looked at have swept us away or swept us into its narrative, then we become people, number one, that are merciful. Because again, if God is a merciful God and he's shown incredible mercy to us who are enemies of God, what does that say about the type of people we should be to those that we disagree with? What about people that are maybe offensive to us? What about those that annoy us? What about those that maybe even hurt us? Or we would even classify as our enemy. To the degree that you've been swept into the story. And you comprehend it. You understand it. It's shaped you. It's remade you. You will become a merciful person. To the degree that you don't get the story. You will be a person that is constantly condescending to everybody. Looking to cancel anybody who does not agree with you. And the point where transformation needs to happen is we've got to go back to the beginning of the story. We've got to go back, constantly remind ourselves, who is God? What has God done for us? To what degree, to what manner has God demonstrated or initiated his love to us? And let that begin to reshape our hearts. And then secondly, I think this also involves gratitude. That rather than a heart of discontentedness, we become people that are filled with gratitude. Because if God is showering lavish love upon us, what ought that do to our heart? Well, it changes us from being discontented people that are constantly upset and frustrated with everything. It's not going our way to say, wait a minute, I need to just pause and step back and look at all that God has done for me in spite of me, just because he loves me. And then lastly, this creates a sense of hopefulness for those of us who are looking to God's future. This doesn't mean that we might not be in the midst of really troublesome or horrible circumstances, facing some form of you know ailment or sickness or disease or bad marriage or bad relationships or bad job or living in a house where the you know the manager or the owner of the house is just not a really good human being um it doesn't mean that you might not be in the midst of really bad diverse circumstances but it does mean that even in the midst of those circumstances hope begins to replace the despair and what peter tells us is that all of this is anchored in the very person of Jesus. The very person of Jesus. 
And we'll look into this over the next upcoming weeks and months as we begin to jump even further into the story of Peter. But the big idea is that Jesus, I'll give you a a word, uh, is that the exclusivity of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus, meaning Jesus is the means, the vehicle by which God uses to unleash all of this goodness into our lives, through our lives, and into this world. And I like how C.S. Lewis described this, and I'll be wrapping this up. So maybe Nick can come on forward and we'll get ready to sing our final song. And our ushers will be prepared to hand out the communion, and we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. But C.S. Lewis had this great quote in, in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet or be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, or I would add hope, newness, inheritance, he would go on to say, or anything that has them, he he says, uh, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not the sort of prize that God could, if he chose to hand out to anyone, they are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up to the very center of all reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, how can he do but wither and die? And this is C.S. Lewis's way of basically describing that Jesus is the center of all of this. When Christians say that Jesus is the means of life, it's, it's not trying to alienate anybody. It's just trying to say this, this is the light, the life, and the love that comes from the very source of God himself that opens up for us the possibilities of becoming new, of having hope, and of walking into this inheritance. So my hope for you this morning as we close and sing would be for you to, first of all, just maybe assess where are you at with regard to these things? What parody, what dream beyond God are you settling for? That's maybe filled with hope right now, but at some point, that very thing that you're giving yourself to, it'll fail you. It doesn't have the potency, the power, the ability to sustain the depth or the breadth of your desires or your dreams. But God does. And this is where Jesus invites us to trust him. So why don't we all stand, we'll sing, the ushers will hand out the communion, and then at the end of the song, we'll partake of the communion together, and we'll celebrate uh, as we remember the love of God that was put on display through the life, death, resurrection of his son, Jesus.